Uh, I'm going to invite Alistair forward now. Uh, he's going to read for us our sermon scripture reading, which if you turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide, uh, you can find if you've brought your Bibles. You can also turn to Luke chapter 9. Uh, before Alistair reads, let me just quickly give you a little heads up on what's going. If you're just visiting us or if you're here for the first time, um, the Gospel according to Luke is a first century document uh, that's been faithfully preserved, passed down to us. It describes the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is called Emmanuel, God with us. Luke bases his writing on the earliest eyewitness records that were circulating in the first century of those who followed Jesus personally. And so we can believe that what we're reading about today is historically accurate, it's faithful, it's a trustworthy account of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why that should matter to us. Luke is writing, he tells us explicitly in his first chapter, he's writing so that his readers, whether they are in the first century or the 21st century, they would believe the good news about Jesus, that they would build their whole lives on it, that they would find rest and peace and security with God through Jesus Christ. They would give their lives to following this Jesus. We're working our way just slowly through the entirety of the book, and last week we were up on a mountain with Jesus, with Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, for what you could call a mountaintop experience. Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. He was transformed so that they saw some of his glory shine through. But now, in this part of chapter 9, they head down the mountain and back into everyday life. Alistair. Hear the word of the law from Luke 9, verses 37 to 45. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and it will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you for your word given to us in a way that we can understand. We ask that your spirit would come now to give us clarity, not only to hear these words that you're speaking of, not only to understand them as they're written on the page, as they're to be understood uh, by you, its author, but, Lord, that we would be changed in our hearts to, to see Christ differently, to see ourselves and our suffering differently, to see our world with different eyes. Lord, would you help us to believe every word that we read, every word that we hear this morning that comes from your mouth. We ask for your presence and your power now in this time. Thank you for it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you know, before I was a pastor, I was an emergency department RN. 
That was, that was my gig before getting into pastoral ministry. I, I had a few different jobs. I worked in Toronto for a while, worked in Ottawa, had a few other jobs uh, within the nursing world. Uh, and really, up to this point, I had no experience in healthcare or, or medicine or a- anything at all. Um, because fortunately, up until this point, I'd, I'd been quite healthy. Other than needing to go to the hospital for a few stitches, broke my arm once, I, I have a limited experience inside of hospitals. My family growing up as well, again, really really fortunate to say that everyone was pretty healthy. And so this was a brand new world for me when I got into uh, nursing. Uh, before I worked in the hospital, I also had um, some time in at-home hospice care, worked in some long-term care facilities, and of course ended up in the emergency department. Uh, but there was, there was something I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know a lot of things, and I still don't know a lot of things, but there was something which really struck me that I, that I, I didn't know. I didn't know this. I didn't know people could suffer so much. I, I, I didn't realize the, the incredible, long-term, fierce pain and suffering that humans could endure before death finally took them. I didn't know. I, I had no conception of this. I had never faced physical or mental pain personally, like what I was confronted with whenever I went into the hospital. I had never thought that people could suffer to the degree that I saw them suffering, both chronic long-term suffering and acute sudden pain that just sprung up on them. I, I didn't know. I didn't know that pain medication could stop working, that, that people would moan and groan and scream for mercy. I saw how much pain family members could go through watching their parents, watching their spouses, their siblings, even their very little children in agony and feel helpless. I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know people could suffer this much. And maybe, you're, maybe even me saying this makes you a little bit uncomfortable. You'd rather not know this. Uh, maybe you, you, you don't know and you don't actually really want to know because it, it, it is uncomfortable to hear such things. Pain and suffering aren't things that we commonly like to think about. And what we find when we read Luke 9 is Jesus facing suffering, facing and confronting it head on. He doesn't hide from it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't whitewash it. He takes it on head on. In Luke 9, uh, verse 37, Jesus and his disciples, they've again, they've just descended down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And it was there that the disciples just caught a glimpse of Jesus' infinite, eternal majesty as the Son of God. It's a great time. His face is shining like the sun. He's meeting with Moses and Elijah, having, you know, great communion, chatting with them. The voice of the, the Father speaks from the cloud, affirms Jesus and his mission, calls his disciples to listen to him. It is the textbook definition of a mountaintop experience. I don't know if you've ever had a mountaintop spiritual experience, a spiritual high of some sort, a period where you just intensely felt close to God. You know, yet you went on a retreat, you read a great book, you had a good conversation with someone, you were at a conference, uh, and you were just buzzing for a few weeks afterwards. This was an even higher spiritual high than that. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. But it all comes crashing back down to earth just a few verses later. Spiritual highs tend to do that. They get down from the mountain, the disciples and Jesus, and this is what happens. They're just plunged directly into some of the most extremely difficult situations possible. The transfiguration, you have to see it, it was a totally unique moment in Jesus' life. This is the exception to his ministry, not the rule. That was a time of comfort and peace, of bright, visible hope. But most of the time, Jesus is busy getting his hands dirty with the problems of this world. 
That is mostly what he does. And he calls his disciples, he calls you and I today to do the same. This is a good reminder for us. Many of us, we would like to relegate our spiritual lives to just the mountaintop. We, we want our, our spiritual lives to be glorious and always encouraging and very shiny. But this is not the norm. The typical experience of a follower of Christ is further down the mountain where trouble and suffering abound. And it's here. It's here down at the foot of the mountain where Jesus actually does his very best work in us. And so this, this will be our outline for today. What we're going to see in Luke chapter 9 is that Jesus' work down the mountain is to confront two things and to complete another. That, that, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see in Luke 9 that Jesus' work down the mountain is to confront two things and he will complete one thing. And this is, this is the first thing. This is the first point. Jesus confronts our worst suffering. Down the mountain, Jesus confronts our very worst suffering. If you look at verses 37 through 40, Jesus descends from the mountain and immediately into a huge crowd that's waiting for him. And as we learned a couple weeks ago, this is probably the same crowd that he fed uh, miraculously with bread and fish in the wilderness. Um, there are lots of needy people here, lots of sick people, lots of troubled people. But even in a crowd this noisy and this needy, there is just one voice that's louder than all the others. If you look at verse 38, it's, it's a father who begs Jesus to look at his son, his only child. The father describes the son's situation as being dire. Uh, there's an unclean, supernatural, malicious uh, spirit at work in this boy's life. It causes him to have seizures, to cry out. The boy convulses. He foams at the mouth. The father says he is shattered by this demonic activity. It'll hardly ever leave him alone. This suffering is relentless. That word shattered, it actually tells us the severity of this case, how awful. Uh, this is a, a restless, torturous pain that you and I probably can't imagine. We don't want to think about. Now, Jesus has already healed people in Luke, of course, right? Like people who were blind and deaf. He restored their sight and their hearing. It's wonderful for people who were lame or had leprosy. He restored them back to health. But this story shows probably the worst suffering that Jesus and his disciples have confronted yet. What's probably the most gruesome condition he and his disciples have ever seen. And maybe they're looking at this situation. They're saying, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know things could be this bad. I didn't know this kind of suffering actually existed. Remember, this is a young child. This is his father's only son. He is dearly loved by him, and he's being ravaged by this. Mark's version of the story includes the detail that he's been afflicted with this demon since he was a little child. And so here is this, here is this boy, shattered, broken, and his family is desperate. Now, just as an FYI, there's a temptation for us um, to, to maybe just relegate this as, as, as a basic disease. Perhaps this is just epilepsy. You know, like the signs and symptoms kind of check out uh, for that. Maybe you think uh, Luke adds the unclean spirit, uh, the demon language, because in the ancient world, they didn't have modern medical science to, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that's, that's simply not true. It's, it's not true. Jesus often heals people with known medical conditions without any mention of demonic activity. In Greek, there is a word for epilepsy, uh, in Matthew 24, or Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, epilepsy is included alongside other diseases that Jesus heals without any reference to demonic activity involved in those cases. They knew what epilepsy was, epilepsy was in, this, in this world. They didn't have MRIs. They didn't understand as well as we do, but they recognized it as a disorder. This wasn't epilepsy, merely. 
This case was unique. There was something far more horrible going on here. And so Jesus is approached by this desperate father who begs him. He begs him, please look at my son. He's, he's screaming. He's begging. He's imploring. Uh, this, this word for look is far more than just put your eyes on him. He's asking, Jesus, won't you see this suffering? Won't you look at my son? Won't you help? Will you not help him? His father is being importunate. If you remember that word, we introduced it this summer uh, when we were talking about the kind of prayer that God wants us to come to him with. Importunate prayer. Importunate means to do something persistently to the point where it almost seems like you are harassing God. It's, it's doing something with a troublesome urgency. You, see, uh, you seem to people who are watching you doing this to be overly persistent with your requests. You're demanding action from God. God wants his children to be importunate with their prayers. For the tone, the tenor, the frequency of their prayer, especially when they're in distress, to be like this father's. I wonder if your prayers are like this in your suffering. When we suffer, we should seek God importunately. Begging, demanding, not giving up, asking him to look and to see us. Do you not see, God, this suffering in my life, in the life of those I love? We're going to skip over for the moment verses 40 through 41. They're important, but we'll get back to them. And what I want you to see down in verse 42 is that when Jesus is confronted by this horrific suffering thrust at him, he confronts it head on. Uh, He is not afraid of this disease and this demon The demon should be afraid of him. In verse 42, Jesus rebukes this demon. He commands it to leave the boy, and it does. And the boy is healed and returned, restored to his father. And in verse 43, look at it there. Everyone's astonished at the majesty. That means the the mighty power of God. And friends, what a great reminder for us to persist in bringing our greatest suffering to Jesus. to, To beg him, please look at this. Be importunate with Jesus. Jesus' work is to confront our worst suffering head on, and we're called to bring it to him. Your biggest trouble, your deepest suffering, look, you might feel like it's small compared to what this family is going through right now. But it's something that you know is beyond your power to deal with it. For you, it might be a habit of sin that you can't break. It's, it's dogged you and followed you for most of your life. It might be a relationship that just is broken beyond repair. There is no human hope for restoration. It might be a longing that you have, a desire that feels thwarted at every turn. When we cry out to Jesus, he looks at many different kinds of suffering, and he won't ignore it when you go to him. He sees and he hears you. This is what Jesus does down the mountain. He confronts our worst suffering. But this is the second thing. He confronts our deepest unbelief. He confronts our deepest unbelief. If you look at verse 40 here. (coughs) While Jesus was up on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration with three of the disciples, the father had apparently brought his son to the other remaining nine disciples who were down the mountain. And he begged them, please heal my son. And the text says that they couldn't do this. And what does Jesus do in response to hearing this? He groans. Look at verse 41. Jesus says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? This is, this is kind of an odd saying for Jesus. It might be a little surprising for you to hear him say this. Sometimes he actually speaks with this kind of distress towards his opponents. 
But here he confronts his disciples, probably the crowds, maybe even this father to a small degree. He confronts their deepest unbelief. He calls out their persistent doubting of him. Why? Like, you know, this, this, this past winter, we, didn't, didn't we say that doubt is sometimes a good thing? You can have faithful doubt. Why, why is Jesus being so hard in this moment? Well, remember, these are the disciples who have seen Jesus do amazing things. They have seen this Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. They have seen him give sight to the blind. They have seen Jesus tell those who are paralyzed, get up, start walking again. These are the disciples who just a few chapters before were empowered, were commissioned by Jesus to go and to heal and to preach. They've actually already done similar things that Jesus has already done. They've cast out demons themselves. They've healed the sick. And this crowd, they've witnessed this. Many among them are formerly paralyzed, formerly blind folk who have been healed by Jesus. And this crowd might be, again, the same that has just been fed by Jesus in, in, by the miraculous multiplying of bread and fish. And so what's their response when they now see this gruesome case of suffering before them, this little boy afflicted since childhood, their response is unbelief. It's faithlessness. Jesus can't deal with that. That's a bit much. I know he can deal with some bad situations. You know, I know he's able in some respects, but not in this area. That's beyond him. The disciples, despite seeing Jesus' miracles, despite experiencing him working through them to bring about healing, despite it all, they don't believe. And Jesus confronts their deep unbelief. Now, this, this story of the disciples having witnessed God's goodness and then doubting immediately afterwards, it's a familiar story. It's a pattern that we see throughout the Bible. <coughs> Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And this story rhymes with the nation of Israel who long, long ago, after seeing and experiencing God rescuing them from Egypt by sending plagues on Egypt, after they get into the desert, they immediately forget all that God's done. They forget that God is for them and with them. They don't believe that God can keep them safe through the desert, that he can provide food for them or, or bring them into the promised land. And so they grumble, they complain, they persist in their doubt and their worry and their unbelief. They say, yes, I know that God, he can do plagues, but he can't do deserts. Like, this is too much for him. Bringing us into the promised land, that is, that is too much. And then after God <laughs> brings them through the desert, and he miraculously provides them with food and water throughout their time, and, and brings them into the promised land, and they confront new enemies of different sorts, guess what happens? They forget again. They doubt again. They don't believe again. Yes, I know that God can do desert miracles and he can feed us in the desert, but he can't conquer these new enemies. This is too much. Now, this rhymes with our story, too, doesn't it? Perhaps in your life, God's answered your prayers. <coughs> You've asked for something specific, and God's actually accomplished it in your life. And for a short time, your faith is real strong. It's strengthened. And then a new trouble comes. And what happens? You grumble. You complain. You doubt. I know he helped then, but this is different. This is too much. 
Not only that, but we have this advantage over the disciples um, because we can look back on the cross of Jesus Christ. They were looking forward. We, were lo- we, we get to look back. We get to see his great love for us displayed, his forgiveness for us, how he has died for our sin. We remember his resurrection, the power over death itself, that he conquered it for us and for our salvation. But as soon as we face trouble here down the mountain, we doubt. Can God actually do something in my hard situation? Maybe he doesn't see. Maybe God actually doesn't care. We lose hope. We lose trust. We lose our love for God. Even though he showed himself time and again, showed us his love, his goodness towards us, we're found to be faithless and twisted at the first sign of trouble. Friends, this is a call from God to remember, to remember his goodness and love for you. Jesus confronts Unbelief, he calls it out because unbelief destroys faith. It'll kill it. And so remembering is an ethical act. It's commanded. It's something that we must do. We must remember his goodness for us. Remembering all that Christ is and all that he's done for us then and trusting him now, this is the life of faith that we're called into. This is precisely what we're called to. We're to believe God more than what our eyes can see, uh, more than what our hearts can imagine in the moment of suffering. Christ in his kindness not only confronts our worst suffering, but also our deepest unbelief. Maybe you have some of that unbelief this morning. You doubt God's goodness, his love for you, his power and his presence in your life. You think your troubles are greater than even him. Christ graciously shows us where our faith is thin and weak. He confronts our deepest unbelief. Back to our outline. Jesus' work down the mountain faces ugly things. He faces suffering and unbelief, but there's a work that he has come to complete, and this is it. Jesus here is not only here to confront, but to rescue. Jesus not only confronts and calls out suffering and unbelief, but he rescues us from both suffering and unbelief by suffering himself. This is the work that Jesus has come to do, to rescue us from suffering and unbelief by suffering himself. This is a remarkable part of the story, uh, this part of the text we're about to read. Please do not miss this part. You're tuning me out until this moment. Like, oh, I'm supposed to be paying attention. I think a lot of misunderstandings about who Jesus is and what he came to do can actually be corrected by a, a careful reading of what Jesus says, okay? Listening to Jesus himself Uh, in the pages of the scriptures. This is a beautiful scene that has just occurred, right? Jesus has healed this boy. You can imagine the relief, the joy that this father is experiencing right now to receive his son who's been afflicted for who knows how long, restored, whole, happy. What, What a wonderful scene. The crowd's astonished. The father's, you know, in tears probably. The disciples, they feel a little bit reproved, but they're relieved. All is right in the world. But Jesus, while in the middle of this magic moment, while everyone is still marveling at what he's done, look at verse 44. This is key. It's like he he pumps the brakes. He moves their attention. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus turns their attention from this miracle to his work of rescue on the cross, which is about to happen. Jesus has not come simply to be a teacher of morals or a doer of good deeds. Yes, Jesus does amazing things, but he's telling us that there's a more important work that he's come to do. 
And he wants his disciples to know this, to let it sink deep into their ears, deep into their hearts, to not forget. He's saying, I've come to heal and make people whole. Yes, but I will do this by taking their sin and suffering and unbelief on myself on the cross. The depth of the horror that you've seen in this boy is slight compared to the depths of hell that sin and death will bring to people who reject me. Even the restoration of this boy, this glorious restoration which you see, is slight compared to the glorious heights of forgiveness and cleansing which I will win through my suffering. Don't forget this. Don't forget that this is why I have come. And the disciples, they've got a classic disciple reaction to Jesus' saying. If you look at verse 45. My mom, when I was younger, she... She diagnosed me uh, with selective hearing. Maybe you were afflicted by a similar condition when you were younger. This is a condition that particularly affects young men, where they just kind of hear what they want to hear, and then they block out the rest. It's, it's, it's horrible. Um, here, it's hereditary, apparently, too, um, among my children. Here, Jesus tells us, that his coming death for us is the rescue and the healing that he's, that he's really all about. This is why he has come, and the disciples just don't hear this. <laughs> they can't. They won't. Remember, in the first century, there was this view of the Jews that the Messiah is going to come. They're under Roman occupation. They're expecting that the Messiah will come with a throne and with a sword in his hand, um, that he will, he will relieve them of their distress and their suffering through political and military means. Um, but... That's not the way Jesus rescues. And this isn't the kind of freedom that he offers. The disciples can't see this. They won't see it. They, they selectively don't hear it. They show how much they need rescue, not only from their suffering, but from their persistent unbelief. And Jesus asks us to see this too, to let it sink into our bones that this is what he has come to do, that your greatest enemy today, right now, is not your suffering. It's your sin. This is the worst affliction facing you. It is your unbelief your failure to see God rightly and his love for you in Jesus Christ. And your greatest hope isn't the end of your earthly suffering, that that's what you are longing for, but a suffering Savior who will be delivered over for you and killed so that instead of you suffering in eternity for your sin and unbelief, you can have life and freedom and joy in him instead. This is what Jesus does down the mountain. He confronts suffering and unbelief, and he comes to rescue us from both our suffering and and unbelief by suffering himself. Let's end with this. Unfortunately, sadly, for, for many of us, there's no, there's no simple promise in the Bible that if we, if we beg, if we ask Jesus persistently and enough to help us to alleviate our suffering, that we'll be healed, or that, or that we'll have our suffering ended in some way this side of heaven. We are told to ask, to pray without ceasing, and often he's very generous to answer such prayers, but listen, there is no promise for Christians that there will be an end to our suffering uh, in the near term or the end of the suffering of those close to us, like we see in this story. In the hospital, I met many faithful Christians, people who loved God and were loved by God, who prayed, and I prayed with them, and still they suffered greatly, and they endured awful pain until the very end. But this is what the hope of the cross speaks to all Christians who suffer today. This is what he speaks to you, that because Christ suffered for us, because Christ suffered, there will come a day where your sufferings ended, and you will say this, I didn't know. 
I didn't know redemption could be so sweet. I didn't know. I, cu- I couldn't imagine that Christ's death and resurrection would be so complete, would be so total, so perfect, so unimaginably great, that now all of my temporary sufferings seem as nothing. They seem slight. They seem slight compared to this eternal glory, which I now taste and see because of my Savior's work. I didn't know. It didn't enter into my head how high, how deep, how wide God's love is for me and how completely and fully he restored me from even the worst suffering. And so this is what, this is what Christ compels on our faith today, what he asks you to believe and to trust, to pray, even as you're suffering today, to let the words of, of 1 Corinthians 2 sink into your ears. Listen. No eye is seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Let's pray. Father, our suffering is often so so tangible, so on the surface, and hope seems so far away. We ask that you'd send your spirit now to give us deep faith that you are with us and you are for us, even in our suffering. Thank you for our suffering Savior who has demonstrated, who has proved that our suffering will not have the last word, that the restoration and the glory that's awaiting for us is so immeasurably great that even this suffering will seem slight in comparison. Father, give us Give us eyes to see this. We can't imagine it sometimes. Help us to believe it, to hold on to it. Father, help us to be of an encouragement to others in the church to remind them of this promise, of this hope that we have in Christ. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on your people as we suffer, as we fight with unbelief. Please give us what we need. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.